welcome to the European Football Show on the World Football Index. Um, as ever, I'm your host, Alan Feely, coming to you from Lisbon in Portugal. And I'm joined today by three fantastic guests in different parts of Europe. Uh, Mark Doyle is in Bologna in Italy. How are you, Mark? Hey, how's it going? Great to be on the show. Thank you. Uh, Jasmine Baba is in Hessen in Germany. How are you, Jasmine? I'm good. I'm trying. I'm still struggling with the point that it's like not warmer weather here yet. It's been quite cold and rainy and disgusting, and I just want some sunshine. That would be nice. Absolutely, absolutely. John O'Sullivan is in Galway City. John, how are you? I'm great, thanks. Full of the joys of lockdown, so a nice bit of escapism for the next while, hopefully. You you, you normally have some kind of food-related uh, quip. What's, what's, this, what's this week special? I had fajitas, and I didn't manage to spill them on myself, which is progress, so uh, happy days. Fantastic. Fantastic. Also fantastic was the week of football, as ever. Lots going on. Uh, Champions League and Europa League ends this past week uh, with some very interesting fixtures. Uh, let's start off with Borussia Dortmund versus Sevilla. Uh, and I'll go with you in this one, Jasmine. Um, it was an interesting game. Um, obviously, Sevilla playing very well, kind of playing with the typical kind of spirit they always show and re-pushing Dortmund quite close. Um, but of course, there was the big Norwegian uh, freak of nature, Erling Haaland uh, there to do damage, um, no end. Uh, what did you make of this game and what's the feeling in Germany about Dortmund's uh, progression at the expense of a kind of a quite fancy Sevilla team? I mean, I think at, at the basis of it all, and I think what I said last week is that Dortmund have quality and they have world-class quality or what looks to be world-class quality. Erling Haaland's still very, very young in his career. Um, so, But that quality really shone through across both the legs because Dortmund only really averaged 35 38% possession. Um, it was really against... It probably went their way because um, under Terzic, they haven't looked quite... Actually, not even under Terzic, just... Sometimes they don't look comfortable with the ball and um, it's something that they've struggled with recently. So them not having much of the ball across the two legs probably suited them better. Um, it also it was the quality that made them finish off the chances that they did have um, in Erling Haaland. Two goals, I mean, one was a penalty um, and... Yeah, I, I think it was quite a nice, pleasant surprise. And with Dortmund's current form in the domestic league, there seems to be a bit of optimism with Terzic and Dortmund. Now, all the players love him. They listen to him and respect him. So um, there's reports of um, him staying at Borussia Dortmund after the new coach Rosa comes in. But there's also reports of if Marco Rosa gets sacked, he'll be given a second chance. Interesting, interesting. Um, and Haaland, like, I mean, I know we talk about it every single week about how good he is and how kind of phenomenal he is, but I just found his character was very impressive in this game because, you know, uh, for the penalty you referred to, the first penalty was saved by Bono, Yassin Bono, the uh, Moroccan goalkeeper for Sevilla. And then it was retaken because Bono was off his line. And Haaland scored the second penalty, obviously. And after scoring, he went up to Bono and shouted in his face. But what he shouted in his face was actually what Bono had shouted at him when he'd saved the initial penalty. 
and he didn't know what I meant. It was in Spanish. It was some sort of insult. And uh, I just thought it was funny because like a lot of people were stating him afterwards. But for me, I love that kind of character and players. I think it's really, really good. I mean, it kicked off a little bit of handbags afterwards. But, you know, if your goalkeeper is going to do that to the striker and not stay on his line during the penalty and risk a retake, then you deserve that. You deserve that straight back at you. Yeah, Lucas Ocampos too was no angel. Like, I mean, the Sevilla team, are, there's, there are plenty of uh, players who are proficient to the dark arts there. So I think they're maybe just being a bit emotional and reacting like that. But uh, but I guess Dortmund winning again at the weekend, they're now up to fifth. Um, is a Champions League push on, do you think? Oh, there's a really strong possibility now, especially with um, the closest to Eintracht Frankfurt, only two points away from them. And Eintracht Frankfurt does have quite a hard running of games and I think they've also got Dortmund away um I think I'll double check that when we come back to Bundesliga but yeah um it's very possible but if Dortmund have an easier run where the teams give them the ball they might struggle mm, interesting uh John Liverpool won 2-0 in Leipzig against Leipzig uh on at the weekend during the week um, I saw you were quite happy with this one on Twitter you were kind of praising uh the kind of positive momentum that maybe can be engendered from it yeah, absolutely. It was the first time since October that Thiago and Fabinho had played in the same midfield. And I think that gave Liverpool an awful lot of control and poise that they've kind of lacked um, in, in most of the games, really, between that time. I thought Quebec and Phillips, while not perfect, really benefited from having that solid base in front of them. And overall, like Liverpool were probably disappointed they didn't even score more against a very good Leipzig team. So, yeah, you you have to be really pleased with that. Like you mentioned, like hopefully it's not a flash in the pan and they can build on it when they play Wolves tonight. But I think we've seen a lot of things from that game that we can that we can probably take, think that Liverpool will do more often going forward. So as in having Thiago and Fabinho in the same midfield and then keeping Kabak and Phillips as a centre-half pairing. Now, they're not perfect, but they have a lot of strengths, such as Kabak is in the 94 percentile for aerial duels and Nat Phillips is in the 99 percentile. Like, he'd stick his head into a wood chipper for the betterment of the team. So, while their positioning and recovery pace and passing mightn't be up to anywhere close to the standard of, say, Joe Massif, Joe Gomez, or Virgil van Dijk, at least it's a bit of certainty and a bit of assurance in a season where there's been nearly 20 uh, centre-half pairings. So, I think Klopp will be minded to stick with them as his pairing going forward. And then having Fabinho back in midfield, I think, will really benefit everybody. But... Most most notably Thiago, and I think we we probably saw Thiago's best game for Liverpool since the Merseyside derby in October. Uh, he was very effective in pinching the ball high up the pitch. He played with a lot of intensity, but uh, his passing was its typical uh, probing self. So I think the game in isolation was a great result, but it also showed us a lot of things that hopefully Liverpool can stick with until between now and the end of the season. And do you think that, you know, with the kind of upcoming international break, it's a nice time for Liverpool to kind of maybe reset and kind of refocus and recalibrate for the final run-in where they can kind of maybe hope to compete with, you know, Chelsea and Everton and West Ham for a Champions League spot? Yeah, absolutely. Because as it stands, uh, none of the Brazilian players will be going to international duty because they won't be getting called up by their respective nations. Those games aren't even taking place as far as I'm aware. Um, A lot of the African players as well is touch and go as to whether they'll go with their country. So that would mean Sadio Mane, who I think is probably the player in the squad that needs the rest the most. Naby Keita and, of course, Mo Salah. So typically over the years, you'd be worried as a Liverpool fan for the international break because of injuries. And it's always been a team 
that has really put good runs together when they've had a lot of games in a short period of time. I think they like the rhythm it gives them. But in this season of all seasons, I think almost a three-week gap will be very beneficial to Liverpool. And I don't know whether that means the likes of Klopp or Alisson can go home and grieve with their families because of losing their uh, mother and father, respectively. But if it does, I think that would be great for both of them as well. Absolutely. Uh, Mark, uh, Juventus beat Porto 3-2, but crashed out on aggregate. Um, what was the reaction to Turin uh, to that night? I imagine it was nice and calm and tempered. <laughs> yeah, just a bit. It's been, it's been, it's been pretty chaotic for the past week around Juventus um, because, as you can imagine, uh, the fallout was pretty huge. Uh, almost immediately, um, they were questioning the whole project, uh, the CR seven project, um, the wisdom of bringing in Ronaldo, paying him, you know, thirty one million uh, a year. Um, and the question being asked, understandably and, and quite legitimately, was: Is is it worth it to invest so much money in one player, and maybe arguably neglect the rest of this, the rest of the squad, and, and not be able to strengthen in areas where you where you really need to to put some money? And and, and the midfield was the obvious one. You, I mean, the number the numbers aren't good. I I don't want to sit here and, and have a go at Ronaldo because that would be absolutely ridiculous. The guys he has delivered, and that's, that's the one thing I want to say because. If you put up anything that in any way could be perceived as reflecting negatively on Ronaldo, people lose their minds. And we know we all know what social media is like. Ronaldo has delivered in both senses in that he was bought, and uh, Andrea Agnelli, the, the president, admitted this. He, For the first time in Juventus' history, they bought a player with, with not just for sporting reasons. They bought him for financial reasons as well, in terms of uh, advancing and uh, the, the, the Juventus brand. For for for. for, for making them uh, into a global entity and attracting uh, audiences and fans and let's 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 be honest consumers you know like uh, investors from other from other markets and he's Ronaldo has delivered he's boosted their he's boosted their profile on social media which is a massive thing a massive consideration these days he's their the value of Juventus's sponsorship deals their commercial deals you know their kit kit manufacturer deal all of these things have nearly doubled uh, on the, on the, on in since Ronaldo arrived in 2018, so the association with Ronaldo has 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 really benefited Juve. Then then if we look at on the, what he's done on the field, his his record is ridiculous. He's scoring consistently. He's scoring freely. He did it again at the weekend with a hat trick against Cagliari. However, Ronaldo was bought to win the Champions League. He was considered the next step. You know that the, this was a team that had had made. Uh, two finals in 2015 and 2017, and 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 Juve are further away than when Ronaldo arrived. That's the bottom line. Now, I'm not blaming Ronaldo for that. This is not Ronaldo's fault. You know, he's he's he scored goals, and also, if any team that's set up to to, to provide Ronaldo with, with with chances, he's going to score freely. He he remains absolutely lethal. But the the questions, and it was in every day in the paper last week, was is 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 the project fundamentally flawed if you're putting so much money he costs them about 87 million a year now that's colossal and you could argue that Juve have been very uh, unfortunate with with the the covid crisis and the economic crisis that it's caused and that is true nobody could have predicted this however Juve weren't making money even before that you know Ronaldo was costing them money because the wage is so so big so i think it's a valid question to ask is is, is should they continue they've got one more year of this and my, my take on it would be that 
it would make sense to, to, to get Ronaldo off the wage bill now because his salary is, 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 is extortionate. It's, you know, they're talking, it's costing them 87 million a year. It's huge. And he could leave in theory next year for nothing. So the only thing I, I think at this stage, and a lot of the papers have concluded the same things, the Gazette, the Tutto Sport, everything, is that the only thing that will keep Ronaldo at Juventus is the fact that nobody else in Europe can afford him and his wages. That, that's pretty much it. We're seeing now, we're hearing about the Real Madrid, Real Madrid rumours, and that doesn't surprise me, to be honest with you. And Juve will, can say everything they want. Paratici came out at the weekend. Uh, Pirlo said it as well, that they want Ronaldo. Ronaldo's a part of the future. He's the project. Of course they do. Of course they do. I mean, he's, he's been phenomenal. He's, he's, he's still uh, arguably the best goal scorer in the world. Uh, Lewandowski could say something about the Haaland, as, as, as Jasmine mentioned earlier. These guys are unbelievable. But he's, he's still absolutely lethal. However... There's no denying, and it's, it is being admitted, and it is at least being discussed behind the scenes, even though Juve won't say he's a burden, but he is at the end of the day, looking at it. So they have, they have a big call to make, a massive call to make this summer if, they, if, they, if, they were, if Real Madrid were to express a genuine interest, whether they would, they, they would consider letting him go. And the, the mere fact that the question is being asked now is significant in itself because he's been pretty much untouchable for, since he arrived, you know, rightly so, because he, he's delivered. He's delivered. He's held up his end of the bargain. But now, now Juve are in a very, very difficult position because they've been hit harder than any other team in the Deloitte Football Money League by the lack of matchday revenue over the past year. Juve have been hit harder than anyone. And they're in a, they're in a, they're in a very difficult position now. And, and a, a big question needs to, be, needs to be asked and answered this summer. We had a great piece in Goal.com last week just before the Porto game kind of detailing Cristiano's time at Juve so far and kind of the influence he holds on and off the pitch and I was actually shocked by the degree of kind of you know as you mentioned the social media numbers that he brought in I was I was amazed that it was that potent his effect but I guess you know he followed it up with a hat-trick in 33 minutes against Cagliari at the weekend but I guess as you mentioned in that piece as well that's not really the problem because we know he's a goal scorer and he is scoring goals but I guess maybe when you have somebody like him in a team that isn't engineered in the proper way where he's taking almost a fifth of the salary it kind of throws off the balance slightly in the major European games. And, and that's it. also a complaint that's been leveled at Barcelona with Lionel Messi too. Like when you're playing the elite of the elite, hungry teams kind of engineered for these kind of crunch games in the end of the season, you can't carry a player as significant as that. Uh, I just want to ask you on the Madrid links because the whole thing in the Madrid press is that, you know, there was talk that Juve could let him go for 29 million euros and also for free even in uh, Dario AS specifically. And their idea is that they bring in Cristiano this summer. It's a mutually beneficial arrangement and it staves off their need to go and try and invest in Erling Haaland and Kylian Mbappe this summer. They can delay it for another year. Uh, what, what do you think, what would it take for Juve to part company with Cristiano at this point? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the key question. The talk over here is that Juve would be demanding a transfer fee of around uh, 25 to 29 million in order to avoid a capital loss on them. And... Ultimately, that's what we all know as well. I mean, we all we all love football. We're all football fans, but we know none of us, I imagine, have any illusions that it's a business now, and it all comes down to numbers. And that that's what this is all about. That's why he was signed, and that's why I was arguing, as you were saying in the piece, why he, they would consider selling him. So if they were to cut, you know, cover that cap, potential capital loss, they would re, be removing a colossal wage bill um, or colossal salary from their wage bill. And it would it would it would free up it would ease the pressure on the on the team because they they've just posted they've already posted 
uh, for the first half of the season, this season, uh, a 113 million loss. And that situation isn't, isn't obviously going to get better over the second half of the season because they've lost out in the Champions League football and the bonuses and the money that comes with that. So if, if Madrid were to offer them some sort of transfer fee, and even if it were, let's say, uh, you know, deferred payments, you know, uh, a loan move with an obligation to buy or something like which which are obviously became, becoming increasingly commonplace now. The last couple of weeks, the last week I've been working on a piece on the transfer market and, you know, speaking to agents and, and transfer market experts over here, like, you know, Fabrizio Romano and, and these guys are all saying, it's going to be, it's going to be uh, more and more loan deals, more and more swap deals. You know, people, the money isn't adding up anymore. The one thing that COVID has shown us is that the model, the financial model in football is utterly unsustainable. You, you, you mentioned uh, Barcelona there, and I find that a very, very similar situation to, to Juve. Juve are not in, you know, dire straits like Barcelona have, where they had 74% of their wages or 74% of their income going on wages. But ultimately it all comes down, cash is a, Football is a cash cash business. It's all about cash flow, and and very few clubs have it now because where's all the cash going? It's going on players. And Juve, I will we'll continue to say that they won't sell them. They won't sell them. But we've heard all this before. I mean, I remember listening to Juve only twelve months ago saying they wouldn't sack Maurizio Sarri, and then you know within within a couple of months he was gone. So they'll they'll, den- they'll deny it over here. But if they if the numbers add up, if if Madrid were to offer that some kind of deal, even if it was a structured delayed payments. If they were to give them some sort of transfer fee, it'll happen. And, you know, just as Juventus and Barcelona swapped Arthur and Pjanic to balance the books, Juve could do likewise just to just to get Ronaldo off, off, off their wage bill. It would make perfect financial sense. Certainly going to be interesting to see how that develops over the next few months. Um, very significant transfer window incoming in more ways than one, you could say. Um, elsewhere in the Champions League, Paris Saint-Germain drew one all with Barcelona in Paris. Lionel Messi scoring a screamer. Uh, real golazzo uh, from the edge of the box um, but Barcelona ultimately going out even though they played probably one of the best performances of the season um, but you know the damage had been done from the first leg uh, in the Europa League there were several interesting games uh, from a Spanish perspective Villarreal and Granada both uh, won 2-0 against Dynamo Kiev and Mold respectively to set up quite comfortable you would think uh, second legs this coming week um, Tottenham Hotspur and Arsenal both won also uh, Arsenal beating Olympiacos 3-1 and Spurs beating Denimo Zagreb 2-0 and uh, Manchester United and Milan drew one all and uh, at Old Trafford um, John what were you taking this kind of round of Europa League games I think mostly what I think is Unai Emery's uh, muscle memory in Europa League is is something else uh, engineered another victory and it looks like by, by uh, we are kind of a hitch in the, in the second leg that they'll go through to the quarterfinals and I mean Looking at the teams left, I mean, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be out, out of the realms of possibilities for them to get to maybe a semi final or a final even. So uh, he just he just has some know how in that competition. I think um, I watched some of the United and uh, Milan game, and I thought Milan, despite missing a whole host of players, were were largely excellent, which contrasts with their league form. And uh, I think they were probably a bit unfortunate not not to win this game, even. Even if Harry Maguire did miss uh, miss a massive gilt edge opportunity from a set piece, so I think that's uh, that tie is kind of nicely poised because people will talk about United maybe not being the best organized or having uh, like an identity, but in the context of a two legged game, they're still very dangerous because they have so many players that can pull a rabbit out of a hat and do something from nothing. 
Um, I also watched a bit of the Rangers game and I thought that they were probably a little bit fortunate to draw, but they find themselves in a good position. Um, Arsenal and Olympiacos, which is basically a derby game now they play so often. Uh, Arsenal were largely superb and it's they've kind of maybe turned a little bit of a corner in recent times. And uh, Spur, I always thought Spurs would be comfortable in that game and so it transpired. And I said it from the beginning that they're probably one of my favourites to win the competition, even even if we might speak about them in negative terms later on about the Premier League. I think they have the tools to go very far in this competition. Jasmine, what was your take on the Arsenal game? It was a really good match and it was the best half of football. I, I think the second half in since probably this weekend I watched. <laughs> um, and... Yeah, I thought for a slight second in the uh, early part of the second half when we conceded, I thought, oh, Christ, it's going to happen again at Olympiacos. Um, but I was pleasantly surprised by Ga- uh, Gabriel's um, header to make it 2-1. I mean, you can't be unhappy with three away goals, um, no matter what the occasion. So, yeah, it was a really um, solid half of football, which was defined by coming back from mistakes. I'm still a little bit worried about Bernd Leno and his um his all of a sudden way of kicking balls straight at to the opposition, but you know, to his own player who is surrounded by pressure. But we we did it at the end. Um I really hope we get Villarreal in the next round. I want Emery out of this competition. <laughs> I don't hold the grudges. You can't hear any grudges from me. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. <laughs> Villarreal also won the weekend. Actually, they beat Ibar uh, 3-1. Jared Murano scoring a ha- setting up a hat-trick of assists, which is quite impressive. Um, but Mark, I want to ask you on two points um, regarding the Europa League. So first, obviously, is the Milan game. Uh, what do you rate uh, regarding Milan's chances in the return leg in Italy? Um, and secondly, I would like to ask you the reaction in Naples to their exit to Granada uh, in the previous round? What, what was kind of the feedback after that game? Because in Spain, it was lauded as one of the best achievements in Granada's history, if not the best. Yeah, un- understandably, I get that. Uh, in, in Naples, I, I, I mean, there was disappointment because they kind of thought they could they could have a real crack at, at, at that tournament. But I think there's a, there was also a degree of understanding in that um as as Gattuso has, has said several times, they've had a lot of injuries. They've they've as as as, as a lot of clubs have. I know that you know, um, but they've had a lot of injuries. Um, they they look they've looked tired at times. You know, playing twice a week um, obviously hasn't hasn't helped them. hasn't been easy for them. Um, and there, there's been a lot going on behind the scenes there, as you know, with uh, Gattuso and De Laurentiis and Gattuso's future has been. Has been, uh, you know, called into doubt because they had a, a poor run of form, and 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 because of the because of the, the competitiveness of the league over here this season for for the first time in a long time, thank God. Uh, top four was by no means a guarantee, and they they've kind of moved themselves back into it, uh, back into contention for a top four finish, which I think is kind of needed for Gattuso to hold on to his job. If he was to get top four, um. I think he would be safe. I, I think he's actually do, done a pretty good job when when you consider he walked into an absolute, yeah, chaotic situation uh, with Ancelotti walking, and there was you know players going on going on strike and a bit of a mutiny because of over Eritiro when they were trying to put you know send the, the players into a retreat after a, after a game, and Ancelotti found himself in the middle of a civil war, and 
and Gattuso kind of came in and, and did a really good job and won the Coppa Italia and, and, and brought order and, and, and no end of entertainment. I think he's just absolutely hilarious. I think he's he's so brutally honest and he's so he's just so frank and and he just he tell he calls it like he sees it and I think he's a very very likable character. So I, I'm kind of you know biased in that sense and I, ho- I hope he does well. I hope he survives. But it, it, the, there was an acceptance really that okay, it was disappointing to go out, um, particularly to maybe a, one of the less heralded Spanish sides, but that. It's it's all about the league for them. It's all about finishing in the top four. Um, they 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 had the Super Cup thing a couple of months ago, and now the attention is, is pretty much focused solely on the league. So there was kind of even almost a an attitude of well, it actually might help us. You know, it might it might help them um, yeah, get get back into the top four, and, that, and that's the that's the focus. As for Milan, whom uh, whom Napoli beat at San Siro the other night and kind of effectively killed their killed their Scudetto challenge um, which is a shame because again Milan have done a fantastic job Pioli much like Gattuso came into a really really chaotic situation at San Siro and and steadied the club and got the job even though it was supposed to go to Ranić and that was really interesting it would be interesting actually to hear um, Jasmine's thoughts on that because it was such a U-turn over here that they were going to turn to this you know this this German visionary to 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 completely overhauled the club and they were going to give him an unprecedented amount of control. But Pioli did such a good job uh, and, and they made some shrewd January signings thanks to Paolo Maldini and, and Zlatan was, was obviously the headline headliner in that regard with Chiar who scored the goal against Manchester United has been absolutely fantastic for them. So they've overachieved and um, I think they're in a good position in that toy. Um, I thought they were excellent at Old Trafford. Um, I thought they fully deserved the draw. I think you could have made a case for arguing that they should have won the game. I think they were very unlucky with the disallowed goal uh, by Kessie, who's been immense. I thought he kind of really, on one of the biggest stages you can play on in football, I thought he kind of showed everybody why exactly so many Premier cl- Premier League clubs have been watching him with interest over the past few years. So I thought they took a lot of encouragement out of that. But it just comes down to, to tie it all in, is that Milan have have run out of steam in, the, in Serie A and when they were leading you know, at the start of January because the squad has been pushed too far and, and playing t- they do not have, they have a very good first 11 but they also have I think argue, I think it's officially the, the youngest the youngest squad in the top five leagues and it's they've just they've run out of steam they haven't got the numbers and playing twice a week has killed them I, I think they've got a shot at beating United I know United are an excellent away side but they're, they're a reasonable place for that it's just it'll kind of probably come down to fatigue uh, how many players they get back there's talks Latin might be on the bench and their attitude because losing at home to Napoli has left them nine points behind Inter now and I can't see them uh, recovering that gap so um, I hope they I hope they they, they respond on, on, on Thursday night but it's, it's we'll see it's, it's a tough one Jasmine just on Ragnik I mean uh, Wolfsburg beat Schalke 5-0 this weekend um, things are going from from bad to worse you could say and there's rumours that Ragnik can come in maybe uh, in the near future what did you make of the kind of situation that he had with Milan last season and what do you think that he's going to do going forward do you think that he will return to Schalke or do you think they'll go a different course it's such a hard um, position and situation for everyone especially in Germany when it comes to Ralph Ragnick and um Especially with the Milan situation. Sorry, it's just so funny. Like, um, Rangnick is such a character, I think, is the main thing to take of it, to take from it. He wants copious amounts of control. He wants 
it's his way or the highway. You have to be a hundred percent like with him to go with him. You know, it. I mean, he's made his name for the for everything he's done. Um, but he can be so outspoken and loudmouthed that I think there were certain things that AC Milan were just trying to do quietly. And, you know, there was there were so many situations last year when they were um, considering him or, you know, actually offered him the contract that, you know, Corona came into play and then AC Milan rethought their decision and then you've got Rangnick m- mouthing off to the press and pretending like he's already there. And from what I gather, especially from Italian clubs, they don't really like that. They're, they're not, despite Italian clubs and the members who work under Italian clubs, they are blunt, but they're not going to the media kind of blunt. They, they're kind of back doors until everything is sorted or, you know, especially if one side is keeping it quite quiet, they don't want another side to come out in the media and act like he's already a part of them. So I can see quite a few reasons why that had had the plug pulled. Um, As for him going Schalke, I have some reservations. Uh, Schalke need a complete rehaul. I think that's a job that he's always wanted to do, to be kind of the hero of Schalke, to rebuild them, bring them back up, because they're 11 points off safety um, with nine games to go, so it looks like they're down and out. But everyone is kind of acting that he's their saviour, but we're not sure what kind of things Ragnik will be able to do at Schalke, who he'll be able to bring in, how he'll get them back up to um, Bundesliga, who he would employ around him. Um, there's been a lot of talk, especially with Han- um, Yugi Louv um, stepping down from the German-, German national team post after the Euros this summer, and if he goes to um, Ragnik gets appointed German coach. Um, I don't personally see it, and he's spoken a lot about wanting to go, which makes me feel like they, they've not made any contact with him. Um, there's obviously the Gladbach job still um, available in the summer, and there's that as well. So it's just a really odd time to be a German football manager without a job. At the moment, or wanting to go into the sporting director job because there are so many movements at the moment. <laughs> Absolutely, all across European football, really, isn't there? Um, but just touching on Schalke, can you tell me about Tasmania, Berlin, and their kind of disputation of a record that Schalke are close to achieving? Um, so Tasmania, Berlin were club in um. I think it was in 1965, 1966 season, and um, basically got promoted because it was really weird. It was they wanted a team from Berlin to go to uh, to be in the Bundesliga, and um, 
Hertabillen at the time had their license revoked and basically were relegated for breaking the league's player salary rules. So because of political reasons, they wanted a Berlin side. And um, they didn't really have a second division. So basically the the bottom of the league of the leagues in regional liga um the only place the only team that wanted to go to the bundesliga everyone else refused but um tasmania berlin said okay we'll do it they were third place in the regional liga which is basically the fourth league and with two new weeks notice of the new season so they had no time to prepare no um, transfer dealings, nothing like that. And um, they were basically so out of their depth in this league. Um, I think their end of season um, record was one, two wins, sorry. Um, I think it was two wins. I don't know how many draws and the rest losses. <laughs> and they had... Uh, 93 goal deficit and goal difference. So um, they're basically in the worst team in the history um, and only scored 15 goals and conceded 108 in a 34-game season. So while Schalke have won, I think... Actually, Schalke also might be on record to beat their... Because they've only won once this season, Schalke and Tasmania Berlin won twice. So Schalke, Tasmanian Berlin fans, they dissolved in 1972, but there's still some cult fans around that don't want Schalke to beat that record on the wins. But um, yeah, Schalke are on a goal difference of minus 50. So there's probably no way that they'll get to minus 93 anytime soon. I guess everybody enjoys a bit of notoriety. But uh, but Mark, you wanted to come in there. Yeah, no, I just actually wanted to to back up the point that Jasmine was making about Ranić and um, upsetting people over here by talking as if he was already at the club. <clears throat> Excuse me. Because that's exactly what happened. Um, obviously, there was a U-turn at, you know, at, the, at the highest level with Gazidis and uh, he had abandoned this plan to completely overhaul the club, you know, from, from the academy all the way up to the top. Um, but... It was when, when Ranić started to talk about Milan, it was Paolo Maldini, of all people, who's obviously quite a mild-mannered reserve guy and, and immensely popular. Uh, he kind of countered in the press, saying that before Ranić uh, starts taking Italian lessons, he should take some uh, lessons in court courtesy, in common courtesy, because uh, he shouldn't be talking about positions that are already filled by other people. And it was a real kind of sharp rebuke and from that moment on, it was kind of like, okay, this this deal looks like it might actually collapse now because there was a backlash, and it was clear that uh, Maldini wasn't happy. Pioli is is far too far too nice and far too uh, media savvy to say anything whatsoever. He just he kept his head down and worked away, and and that paid off for him. But uh, yeah, Jasmine is one hundred percent correct in that. Once Ranić uh, spoke, came out, and, and 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 publicly revealed basically that he was on the verge of taking over, uh, things turned sour very very quickly. Very interesting. Paolo Mandini is a phenomenal footballer. Genuinely, is one of my favourite players uh, growing up. Classy figure. Uh, Carlo Ancelotti actually said during the week that if he could pick any player from his his previous teams to put into his Everton team right now, it would be Paolo Mandini. And I think they could have definitely used him this week. 
Um, Everton lost 2-0 to Chelsea, to Thomas Tuchel's Chelsea, who was actually a real um, Ralph Ragnick discipline, a disciple, sorry. Um, and then followed up with a 2-1 defeat or, uh, by Burnley at Goodison Park at the weekend, effectively, you know, putting pay to their ideas of a top four place. Um, really poor week for Everton and for Carlo Ancelotti. Uh, unfortunately for me, he's an Evertonian, but uh, that's, you know, the way things go. Um, elsewhere in the top four race, aside from Chelsea pulling away, they did drop points against Leeds. Um, and simultaneously, Leicester City beat Sheffield United 5-0. And John, I want to talk to you this game because obviously um, Leicester seemed to have a habit of, you know, recording these massive kind of ruthless victories against uh, teams that are already dead, you could say, in many ways. Um, like the Southampton result last season. We just want to ask you about um, Sheffield United uh, specifically because they parted company with Chris Wilder um, this week uh, despite him being the man who took them up from League One to the heights of the Premier League. And even though they're going to be relegated this season, I would have expected personally that they would be, he'd be the best man to bring them back up. Um, but obviously the board didn't think so. And maybe there's things that come out behind the scenes that we don't know about yet. But what, what was your take on the whole... Sheffield United situation during this game and also just the decision to part with Chris, Chris Wilder um, full stop. Well, on this game, I mean, yeah, Leicester were superb. Ian Acho got the hat-trick, obviously, and he, he deserves applauses and he'll get them. But I thought Vardy was absolutely brilliant. And for many years, the narrative about Vardy was that he was a player that could only really play in a counter-attacking system and, you know, play off the last shoulder of a defender and running behind. He like that. He offered next to nothing in terms of creativity or the build-up. But in this game, he's had two assists. And I think since Brendan Rodgers has gone to the King Power, his game has really developed and rounded out despite the fact that he's in his 30s. So I guess it goes to show that players can always develop and always learn. And that sometimes we try to put certain players into a certain box and that's the way we, that's the lens we view them through. But I think Vardy is a much better all-around player than he's given credit for. Um, as for Sheffield United, I, I'm, I'm shocked by that because... It, it seems like they're only judging Chris Wilder off a massive overachievement of getting them into the Premier League and keeping them up comfortably last season. Um, they might point to the fact that they that they backed him in the transfer window, but whether he made those decisions or not, I'm not sure. But their 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 summer window looks very poor in retrospect. Of spending that much money on Aaron Ramsdale and uh, Ream Brewster, uh, Ream Brewster can't get into their team, and uh, Ramsdale has been very very ineffective. I think. I think really if they had kept uh, Dean Henderson on loan once again, he could have probably been the difference between them going down and them staying up because they lose so many games by the smallest margins and that if they had a better goalkeeper, you're thinking that, yeah, there's a good possibility that they could have stayed up. So I think Wilder will probably come out with this better than Sheffield United because surely he'll be he'll be a, a manager that uh, other clubs that are in the Premier League would probably consider, I think. Before Newcastle went for Steve Bruce, they were considering them. So if they stay up, it'll be interesting to see whether they retain Bruce. And if they don't, I think Wilder will probably be foremost in their thoughts. People have also mentioned him in, uh, in the same breath as Celtic. Um, it, it'd probably be something that I think would be a better choice for them than Roy Keane, who's someone that's also linked with them. So as much as I'd love to see the box office of Gerard versus Keane in the Old Firm Derby, but um, uh, surely, surely, sh- surely Roy versus Stephen Gerrard is, is is a must have. Like I mean, I think everybody would be watching the Scottish Premier League with rapt attention if that happened. Like, 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, I think Celtic are minded to get a big name because Rangers got a big name. It's 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 absolutely no guarantee that it'll work. And, you know, Roy Keane's managerial career is kind of a bit patchy. He's done some good things. He's done some bad things. But if that if that were to happen, I think in terms of TV figures, it would certainly be a boost for the league. I thought that Sheffield United, <clears throat> excuse me, would be well-placed to come straight back up if they had regained, um, if they had retained the services of Wilder because they have McBurney who has... 24 goals in his last championship season. And then Reem Brewster had 11 and 20 for Swansea in his championship season. So I thought they would have had the firepower to uh, to bring them straight back up at the first time of asking. But now I have my reservations. But out of this out of this whole thing, I think that Chris Wilder will probably come out better in the long run. Does that unpack, Jasmine, in the North London derby? Um, that's short lanes there. I mean, obviously, Arsenal won the game 2-1. A very big result for them, given Spurs won quite a good run of form. Um, you know, Emil Smith-Rowe was outstanding. I thought maybe one of the best players in the pitch. Uh, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, the captain, kind of, you know, marquee player of Arsenal, uh, wasn't even on the pitch, uh, given he turned up late for training and then left, was one of the first people to leave um, in his chrome-plated Ferrari uh, before the warm-down was finished um, due to disciplinary issue with Mikel Arteta. I shouldn't ask you about this game, and it's kind of a complex question, but I guess, you know, Aubameyang is the star. He's a good relationship with Arteta generally, um, but there has been a few uh, disciplinary slip-ups. Do you think that Arteta, by you know putting his foot down and not not even bringing him on, is a big show of strength and authority? And do you think that this result could be kind of you know season igniting for Arsenal, given they're still fighting in the Europa League and they're still you know in a shot of maybe getting some upward momentum in this congested Premier League table? Do you think that this result could be the kind of moment that Arteta's reign kind of kicks in uh, in reality and kind of really begins to push something forward positively? I think this result has been coming for a while. It's just a big result. I mean, the last 10 minutes of the match was absolutely horrendous. Spurs suddenly switched on with 10 men and made every Arsenal fan have really bad stomach aches. Um, But I think... It's impressive the way that he's worked, the tactics and formation he has recently, especially with the addition of Emil Smith-Rowe in the starting squad um, and Martin Odegaard. I think he's got such an emphatic, enthusiastic, young, quick, talented front three to just back up the striker that he plays the 4-2-3-1 with. Um, they've all just kind of clicked in Bukayo Saka and Odegaard Smith-Rowe. So it's really, really nice to see. It's even pushed uh, Willian to be better, which I thought was a lost cause. So I think it's been kind of coming. Um, whether it's going to kickstart the rest of the season with consistency, I think there's still quite a few um, issues with certain People just, and in, it's just individual mistakes, lack of concentration. We've seen it with Bernd Leno recently. You kind of get it every now and then with Shaka. Um, Thomas Party still hasn't looked quite like he's fit in. Um, so I think there could still be consistency issues yet. But yeah, the kind of where we weren't creating that much a couple of months ago, we now actually have a proper attacking movement and structure, which is nice to see. On the point of um, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, um, 
it, it's an it's an interesting one. I've always kind of doubted him being captain. He's a great role model for youth and the younger players, but he's always had this disciplinary record against him, even at Dortmund where he'd come in late or he'd fall asleep in uh, meetings. And so for him to be made captain was always, always going to be quite an interesting one. And he's done pretty well. But yeah, there's um, he's still prone to the slip-ups. And um, I think it is right for Mikel Arteta to put these non-negotiables in place at times because it's worked with Guendouzi because when Guendouzi was forced, like, ousted out the squad, the whole squad improved. We won an FA Cup. We had a better run in the Premier League. And it's only right to, your captain should not be coming late on match day in the North London derby. And, you know, it was a risky tactic, but there is no other way to assert dominance like that. Um, whether he takes that on board or reacts angrily, that's on Aubameyang himself. Um, hopefully he just sees it as, you know, right, we're, we're moving on now. Um, he left during the warm down, but there's, um, we don't know if that was due to a personal issue or if he was just angry. Very true. Uh, John, you want to come in there? Yeah, I just wanted to say that and wonder if Jasmine agrees that I think Arteta is inherently confident in his own ability to go into his first job in in management and to get rid of Ozil and to get rid of Guendouzi and to also maybe publicly kind of discipline Aubameyang in such a manner. It actually kind of reminds me of when Guardiola went to Barcelona and he got rid of Deco and he got rid of Ronaldinho and then after a season he got rid of Etu. Now Etu might necessarily have been a disciplinary thing, it might have been a tactical decision, but still as a rookie coach he wasn't afraid to make these massive decisions and it's probably like looking forward a uh, probably a really good sign of uh Mikel Arteta and the way he builds a culture at the club and the way he carries himself and uh I just another thing I want to mention about that game specifically was just how conservative Mourinho was and how many times it's bit him in the behind this season uh Spurs have lost 10 points from winning positions in the league which is the the third worst record only Fulham and Brighton have lost more points from leading and uh, it's the second time it's happened in a big game. He also done the same at Anfield, where they were drawing one all. They had just had hit the post through Bergwijn, and then he takes off Bergwijn for Regulon, who is the left back, and uh, went very defensive. And then lo and behold, Liverpool won. Similarly, even though Bale I thought was very poor in the game, he takes off Gareth Bale for Musa Sissoko, and then Arsenal go on and get the winner. So I think his conservatism is really making a rod for his own back in a lot of instances. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, speaking of Regulon, I thought it was very funny the way he celebrated Lamela's goal, just pure enthusiasm. He's a really kind of passionate character. Um, of course, he was Sevilla last season, very integral part of their uh, Europa League winning team, um, playing in the left, a left-back position uh, while Jesus Navas was in the right-back position. Uh, Sevilla won the Seville Derby last night in the sanchez Juan, winning 1-0 against Real Betis, um, who had beat Alaves 3-2 on Monday evening in a kind of a mini comeback of their own, which is quite unusual for Betis to do things like that they're normally I think it was the first time in almost a decade that they came back from two goals down to win a game um but ultimately they fell to Sevilla but I think it was a result that actually kind of almost left both sides in a good light because you know Sevilla are fourth Betis are sixth they're both building quite well 
Sevilla's mission this season for me is that we could make the big three a big four. They're on course to do that now. They're six points clear, but I'll associate that nine clear, Betty. And Betty, if they get the Europa League, would be a fantastic result for them. So I think even though there's only one winner in derbies, nobody likes losing derbies, especially in a city like Seville, where they really hate each other, to be honest. Um, I think both sides came out of it in relatively good light. They showed their faces, as they say in Spain. Uh, elsewhere in Spain, Atletico Madrid beat Atletico Club 2-1 midweek to go level in games played with Barca and Real Madrid. Um, but then drew it all with Hatafe on Saturday evening. Uh, just hours after Real Madrid had beaten Elche 2-1, um, with Karen Benzema scoring a late brace to turn things around against you know this newly promoted team or currently in their relegation zone. So the Spanish title race is really holding up. Very interesting things going on there. Barcelona are playing this evening against Huesca. Uh, Lionel Messi has actually just drawn level with uh, Xavi in terms of games played for Barcelona, uh, which is quite a feat in many ways. Quite a feat of consistency, you could say. And yeah, things are interesting in Spain for sure. And I want to talk to you this, uh, Mark, because, you know, a lot of the press in Catalonia especially have been talking about what's Joan Laporta, Barcelona's newly elected president, going to do with this team going forward in terms of how is he going to build it for the next kind of, you know, few years. Um, Ronald Koeman is looking to be in good shape to stay next season. That's the word on the street. It's obviously dependent on how things go. They're in the Copa del Rey final. They're also still in the fight for La Liga. Um, names like Mikel Arteta uh, and Julian Nagelsmann have been mentioned as potential alternatives in the near future, as well as obviously Xavi. Um, but it's expected he'll get a window to maybe implement uh, his own kind of system into the team and make some signings because last summer he really didn't make any. And one of the main positions he's looking for, and I'm asking this in a very convoluted fashion, so apologies, but it's a powerful striker, basically, a powerful striker. Some of the names mentioned have been Erling Haaland, who's obviously not going to be short of competition uh, for his signature, uh, Sergio Aguero, who isn't the profile he wants, but it suits the club to bring him in because he's on a free transfer. He's friends with Lionel Messi. Uh, Memphis Depay, who he worked with um, with the Netherlands. And... Here it is, Romelu Lukaku, who uh, he worked with at Everton. Now, Lukaku has been a pivotal part of this Inter Milan team. They beat Atlanta earlier in this week. They beat 3-0 as well. Uh, what do you make of Inter this season? Are they going to win the league? Is it a done deal at this point? And how integral for you is Lukaku to this team? And has he changed, do you think, from the way he maybe was when he was at everything, when he was at United. Yeah, I, there's a lot there. Even even just with Lukaku, I mean, as 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 you've touched on, he's he's he's, he's really flourished over here, and and, and I suppose it's it's not too surprising in a way because uh, Antonio Conte absolutely loved him. He tried to sign him at Chelsea, and he had a team specifically set up to play to Lukaku's strengths. And but you know, at the, at the end of the day, there was still you know Lukaku had to deliver, and he has. Incredibly, like I mean, over here it might be giddy talk, but they are actually discussing whether he'll he'd be in the reckoning for a Ballon d'Or nomination, you know, like podium place or whatever. If it went ahead this year, um, he's 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 been fundamental to the to the rebirth. Uh, he's formed an absolutely incredible and very complementary partnership with uh, Lautaro Martinez up front. The two of them are just perfectly in sync. They seem to get on. You know, it's one of those classic the old ones where they used to talk about. Guys, oh, they get on off the field as well as they get on off it. Yeah, I get on on it. So it's, it's um, he, he's a leader. 
he he steps up in the big games. There was a little bit of a criticism um, during the first season that he wasn't delivering in the big matches. That's gone. Uh, I think he scored in three or four derbies in a row. He's decisive. He's strong. He's powerful. He's he's made a complete mockery of the idea that he wasn't quick enough to play in United's uh, attack. I remember that that all oh, United wanted to play counter attack in football. Lukaku isn't quick enough. That's that's just been you know completely decimated that argument because he is. He's, but, but at, at times, I, I, the Gazzetta really put it well a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Lukaku had one of those games where he looks like he's a, a man playing with uh, little kids in the park. I mean, he, he looks so much physically bigger, physically stronger and quicker. So at times he just looks unstoppable. And I, I, if you even think of the goal against Shakhtar last year in the Europa League uh, semi-finals, I think it was. Like he he's been phenomenal and and he's he's I don't think he'll beat Ronaldo to the Capo Canonieri the the top scorer this year but he, he's in the hunt and it is all about the league for 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 Inter and to answer your question about whether it's over it looks really good I mean the papers today are basically toasting Inter like uh, and I think even the Corriere della Sport said uh, Lo Scudetto è servito which is just the Scudetto is served like the title is served. Um, I, I don't think we're quite at that point but you mentioned those two results against uh, Atalanta and Torino and they were massive uh, Fabio Capello came out and said it's over the league is over I want to congratulate Conte now he's done a great job um, nobody's going to catch them it's 10 points to Juventus in third Milan are 9 points back haven't played the same amount of games but Juve could draw to within 7 if they win their matches and Juve don't, to me don't have the toughest uh, run of fixtures over the next while they could put the pressure on um, but Inter have this the the grinta as, as, as the Italians would say this this kind of determination this ruggedness they, and you know Conte said we have oh god about two or three two or three weeks ago he said we've we've, we've 12 finals left and it's such a cliche it's, it's a real tired old cliche but they're, they're actually playing like that they're playing each game like it's a final they're battling for their lives and they haven't they're they haven't played actually particularly nice football against Atalanta. That's very difficult because Atalanta are the best football team in Italy. And I'd argue one of the best in, in Europe. They're just aesthetically so good. And they just batten down the hatches. They they they, they intercreated very few chances. They got a goal from a corner and they defended for their lives. And you to, to see them celebrating at the end, you knew how much it meant to them. Because obviously with COVID football now, you can hear the screams, you can hear the roars. And then we saw all the pictures in the, in the dressing room afterwards. They, they were celebrating like they'd won a final, but they knew how important it was to beat an Atalanta side that were absolutely flying and were so dangerous. And and the key thing was to keep a clean sheet. And that, that's the key to the transformation of this, this Conte, this Conte inter side is that they were really, really porous during the first half of the season. They were scoring freely thanks to Lukaku and Lautaro, but now they've should, they've, they've really kind of shut up shop very, very effectively. And that's what I think is going is getting them over the line. And, and that's why they look like a title winning side now. So, if I was betting, yes, I would back them 100%, but I'm, I'm not a betting man, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't you know, with Ronaldo and, and Juve still hanging about, and their squad is still still superior. Juve's squad is still the strongest in the league, and they've nothing to focus on now, and they're extremely hurt by what happened in the Champions League, so they're going to go for hell for leather, that's, that's, and they still have Inter to come uh, to Torino, so it's, it's not over, but I can see why the Italian papers are, are saying it looks over, you know, it, it, it they they look like it's eight wins in a row now. I think for Inter, it's they, they have that they have the bit between their teeth, and um, they they're, they're starting to look very very difficult to stop. And they're they're pulling out wins that you know they're winning really really ugly in the last couple of games. And, and 
these are these are these are these are the type of games that win your leagues, obviously. I don't think Antonio Conte will be disappointed they're winning ugly. I think he'll relish it, if anything. I think he'll also relish the idea of beating Juventus, wouldn't he? Um, but John, you wanted to come in there. Uh, yeah, just just uh, two quick points for Mark. Is that did you feel that there is an awful expectation on Conte all season to win now? Because a lot of their signings in recent times have basically been older players that Conte himself has picked, players with little resale value, kind of with the idea of these these guys will help us win now. And I suppose when you see that in light of the kind of financial struggles of the club's owners, was there a massive expectation on Inter to win now and not just like kind of consolidate for the future? And also, I think Lukaku was interesting recently. He said he attributes his increased pace to the diet initially. And that's been something that a lot of players have done over the years. He said he eats a lot of uh, fresh uh, fish and vegetables. So it's it's very interesting to see how Italians kind of have a way of preserving players' careers, and a lot of people would say it's because of the diet. Yeah, uh, two yeah two two very good points actually. Uh, to answer the second one first, um, it, it the the diet thing actually is is interesting, and, and it's something you, as you as you guys have all probably seen that he's alluded to himself when he you know there was talk that he was too heavy. I think that was specifically mentioned by Gary Neville. You correct me if I'm wrong. About that, he wasn't in he wasn't in uh, good enough condition at one play to, to play for United. That he was overweight, I think, was the specific word used. And Lukaku made a point of going on Instagram and showing off this you know impressive physique, this this incredible six pack, and saying, and he said, uh, "Not bad for a fat boy." So it's something that he's aware of as well, John. Uh, that he knows he's been. Um, criticised for maybe the perception at least was that he hadn't kept himself in great condition. So yes, uh, the diet has happened. And, and this is something that has happened before. I think if uh, I think if you remember, Patrice Ever went to Juventus and Juventus's um, medical tests and, you know, in relation to nutrition and all this kind of stuff as well and dietary needs were so uh, comprehensive that they detected uh, an allergy that he had that hadn't been previously detected. And you're thinking he was playing previously for Manchester United, such a, you know, world-class, such a, one of the richest clubs in the world. So, they do take this stuff very, very seriously, and as, as you alluded to, they have a they have a history of it. They, um, I mean, we used to look at the Milan team, and the back four used to be like, they did, you know, the average age seemed to felt like they were about fifty years of age. Uh, Costa Corta and Maldini, and they all looked immaculate, you know. And the joke over here is how do they, you know, how do they age so well, you know? And they, they talk about the olive oil and this kind of thing. And so the diet is huge, and I, I do think he's been really looked after. I also think he deserves credit for the the amount of effort he's put in, and, and he's. He's, he's, he's playing like a man possessed and, he, and he, he, seems, he definitely seems to be motivated. And that attitude that he has, that, that desire for success, to bring it into your other point, tallies perfectly with, with Conte, who is just completely driven. Conte over here, and I'm sure obviously as he earned the reputation in England as well, is, is considered quite a contrary character, quite a difficult character, uh, quite a combustible character, and that he's consumed with winning. It's all he thinks about, and he's all he's obsessed with it. And he, you touched on it as well um, about the, that he would love to knock Juve off their perch because let's face it, Conte played a massive, massive role in putting Juve on their perch. Um, so for him to, to 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 do this in a second season would be huge. And yes, uh, John, you're hundred percent correct. He, he had to win. He had to win the title this year. There's there's no other way of getting around around it because as you said, he invested in players that were the wrong side of thirty. Um, he, he shunned the like last summer for example I'll give you a perfect example they could have signed Sandro Tonali who's considered one of the most exciting up and coming young midfielders um, in Italy 
uh, they were calling him the new Pirlo. And he went to Milan instead of Inter. And Conte went out and signed Arturo Vidal. And, and that said it all about his policy. He wanted guys that he thought he could rely on. He wanted guys with uh, a winning mentality. He wanted guys that were going to give everything for the cost. Now, Vidal hasn't even played that important role. But there's other guys. This this attitude that Conte has, this, this absolutely insatiable for, uh, desire to, to, to win and, and, and all-consuming has, has really rubbed off. And everybody, everybody at Inter has bought into it. They all call him. They say his nickname over here is El Martello, the, the hammer. They've all they all say he's he's so hard on us. He's so difficult. He's so demanding. But they all love him. Not even when he was under pressure after another European failure, and that's the one big criticism of Conte is that he doesn't deliver in Europe. Even after that, the players were all 100 percent behind him. Even after that, they, 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 the board stuck with him. And one thing, one big thing now that is in his favour, that, that elimination, because they got, they got knocked out of Europe completely, not just the Champions League, is that Conte with six or seven days to prepare for a match, you know, with a week between games, is phenomenal. He did that in his first season at Chelsea. He won the title, didn't he? So it's, he did it at Juventus in the first season at Juventus when he took over. They had no European football. Juventus were terrible. They'd finished seven, two years in a row. So if you get, when this guy can come into a club and you kind of give him as much control as he demands because he is incredibly demanding as we all know it usually ends badly because it just it, it goes too far this 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 um, this desire for complete control of the club and, and, and full power it can end badly but he, he, you're right you're 100% right that he had to win this year because everybody was saying you may have a new new coach uh, Milan are only are in a rebuild uh, in Napoli we don't know what to expect that this was the year it had to be done. And, and and again, you mentioned the ownership situation. They're hanging around, essentially, sunning at this stage because we know they have they have financial problems. They're essentially hanging around because they think they're going to win the league now and, they, and that would be their way of cushioning the blow maybe of, of selling shares, whether it's a minority share with a view to a majority share in the future. But it, it they, they have to win it this year. But the good thing is they're not, they don't seem to be feeling the pressure. If anything, as again, as you alluded to earlier, um, they're, if anything, they're thriving under the pressure. It seems to have brought them together and they've got this perfect siege mentality that should sustain this Scudetto charge. It reminds me a bit of, you know, Luis Suarez going to Atletico Madrid. Like both Suarez and Vidal were kind of, you know, discarded basically, for want of a better word, by Barcelona. Kind of told, you're no longer of use to us, go away. And so they go into clubs and coaches that thrive in that kind of adversarial spirit like obviously Cholo Simeone and Atletico and you know Antonio Conte and Inter I know obviously I think Suarez's impact on the pitch has been greater than Vidal's on the pitch but I think behind the scenes he, he make a big impact for sure in terms of his kind of almost arrogance you could say and his kind of fighting spirit but how important do you think are you know Nicolo Barella and also um uh, Latoro Martinez both players under 25 and do they kind of balance out the kind of experienced heads in this inter team and offer kind of youth and vitality on top of them. Yeah, well, I'm I'm delighted you brought up Barella because I was wondering actually, you know, you can particularly during lockdown we can all feel a bit isolated. And I was wondering, is he making waves? Is he attracting attention outside of Italy? Because I am convinced this guy is absolutely world class. I think he I think he could have a really big European championships. Um, I think he has everything. I think he's ideally suited to the Premier League. And he's even said that himself. He it doesn't surprise me at all to, to, to learn that he grew up idolizing, idolizing Steven Gerrard, watching guys like Frank Lampard. He he said he loves the, the cut and trust of the Premier League. He loves the pace. He loves the intensity because that's how he plays. And 
if we if we go back to Conte and, and sign in certain players of a certain character and a certain skill set, like Vidal as well, Conte has basically tried to recreate a Premier League team in in England, and they play with incredible intensity. They create they play at a, at a, at a, at a, a, mad, a mad like there's a, there's a real aggression there. There's there's a real pace to their game, and this is why they they they, they struggle to play twice a week because they go flat out in, in every match. Conte had described them as saying. Um, he described their problems after a defeat in Dortmund, I think in the Champions League the year before, in the first season. And he said, um, it's difficult to play 200 miles an hour in every match. And it is. And and it, he asks so much of the players. And, he, and Barella is ideally suited to this system because he's indefatigable. He's, he's up and down. He's a classic box-to-box player. He's very skilled. Um, he has he, he picks out some lovely passes. He's added a bit of goal. He had added goals to his game now. Um, he's incredibly dynamic. He is just made for that three-man midfield that Inter have. So he's uh, he's he's really he's, he's he's gone to another level this year. And I, I think a lot of it, he's just a perfect Conte player. I think he's he's probably at where, where where Vidal was five or six years ago. And if he has anything like the same career, enjoys anything like the same success, he'd be fantastic. And I, and I I do really really rate him. Conte has has done a great job as well. You know, reinvigorating and integrating the likes of Ericsson and who looked completely out of, uh, like a fish out of water at one point. Now he's come back to play a key role. Perisic as well looked like he was past it. Um, Lautaro is, is I, I really enjoy watching. I, I think he can frustrate the hell out of you sometimes because, as you said, he's still quite young and he still has a lot to learn. But I, I he's, I, I can understand why Barcelona wanted him. I could understand why there was talk of Manchester City at one point because he's, he's high energy. He's very skillful. Technically, he's strong. He can finish. His goal yesterday against Torino was absolutely fantastic, a brilliant header. He works really, really well with uh, Lukaku. He's unselfish. Um, I, I can see elements of Suarez in him sometimes, but he's, he's still a little bit different to that. Um, so these are the guys, these are the future for Inter. So for all the fact that uh, Conte has bought a lot of guys the wrong side of 30, you're correct in, your saying, that, in saying that these guys, have, uh, Lukaku, Bastoni at the back as well, Younger guys, there, there is still a bit of a core there that they, they can work with. And the great thing is, Barella, they're talking about, is the next Inter captain. That, that's, that, that's, that's the path that has been made for him. He's going to captain Inter. And it looks like he wants to stay there. And he looks like he's happy. Lautaro, after looking like he was destined to join Barcelona because of all their financial problems, they can't afford him now, he's going to sign a new contract. He said it again yesterday. It's, it's, the agreement is there. We just have to sign it. If they hold on to him, if they hold on to Barella, they hold on to Bastoni, at least there's still the nucleus of a side going forward post-contact because, as John correctly pointed out, he's all about winning in the here and now. He didn't give, he didn't give a crap to be honest with you about the future. He wanted to win now, and but they're, they're, they do still they have a core there, and I'd be I'd be very excited if I were an Inter fan. If you if you can build a team around those guys, you, you've got a chance of building on, on what should be the Scudetto winning season. Certainly, a blend of kind of steel and silk, you could say, very potent combination. European football um, but just to kind of bring things to a close guys I'm conscious of the time um, Jasmine just in Germany uh, obviously Bayern Munich won again they beat Werder Bremen 3-1 uh, away from home um, Borussia Mönchengladbach lost 3-1 to Augsburg uh, to continue with their struggles um, what do you make of these games and also what do you think of their chances this coming um, week I mean obviously Bayern have a 4-1 lead against Lazio in the Champions League last 16 second leg uh, while Mushin Gladbach lost 2-0 to Man City 
in the first leg and they go to the Etihad Stadium uh, trying to recoup that. Do you, what do you think of these games, first of all, from the weekend? And do you have much hope for Mushin Gladbach in terms of coming back against City? Um, and do you think that Bayern will be confident in seeing out the job against Lazio? Um, so over the weekend, uh, for Bayern against Werder Bremen, it was m- very much another day at the office for them. Um, Goretzka goal, two Miller assists, and uh, another Lewandowski goal. Now he's really, really close to breaking Gerd Miller's 40-goal um, season in the Bundesliga. He's only eight goals behind now. Yep, needs eight more from nine games which is 0.9 per game of a goal. And he's averaging 1.42 per 90. So it looks like he'll break that. And now they've opened up a four-point lead over Leipzig, who drew. Um, So I think they'll be more than comfortable against Lazio. They've had players come back. um, And, I mean, everyone doubted uh, really weak not weakened, but more weak than usual against Lazio away, and they beat them for one, so I think that tie is pretty much over. Um, Gladbach, they have... Oh, where to start? Um, uh, lost 3-1 against Augsburg. Um, they're now seven games without a win in Bundesliga. They've fallen. I think they're still pot- hanging on to 10th position, but all the kind of lower table pack are starting to catch up with them they're now um realistically seventh will be Europa League paces if um Dortmund or Leipzig win the DFB Pokal and they're five points away from seventh place but if they wanted to definitely solidify Europa League they're now seven points off the place um they're nine games without a win in all competitions and you don't want to face the best team in Europe, maybe the world in the Champions League and try to overturn a 2-0 deficit. Um, Yeah, it's a very, very um, gloomy time to be a Gladbach fan or to be Gladbach's current manager trying to go to Dortmund. Absolutely, absolutely. Both Atletico Madrid and Chelsea drew nil all at the weekend, um, but they're both in decent runs of form. Uh, Chelsea hold a 1-0 lead over Atletico after winning in the neutral venue first leg 1-0 John what are your thoughts on this game do you reckon that uh, Chelsea are going to see it through or do you think Atletico could have a chance Um, there's not much talk in Spain about it because I think Atletico's priority and Cholo Simeone's priority is 100% La Liga and Champions League would be a bonus if anything else um, what 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 you take in this one? Who do you fancy? I think Chelsea are favourites because of the cushion, but as to whether Atletico have a chance, I think absolutely. But that would necessitate them playing in a bit more of a braver manner than we saw in the first leg. I thought they were nearly a bit meek. They went, they reverted to type and doubled down on it and played extremely defensively. Um, they looked really devoid of pace. I don't know if Moussa Dembele can play in the Champions League or whether he's cup tied, but he might be an option to put into the team besides Suarez just to give them an out ball because you can see Chelsea dominating the game and Atletico Madrid playing on the break. So possibly using the likes of Carrasco or Lamar or uh, Dembele on the pe- on the break because they, they, look very, they look very unthreatening in the first game. Uh, I'd say Chelsea will probably win this, but if Atletico were to win, I wouldn't be that surprised. But like you say, their, uh, their, their priority is definitely the league and the, 
they drew with Hitafe. I don't think I read something like Hitafe haven't scored in 19 games against Atletico Madrid in the league. Yes, yes. Never against, I, never against Cholo Simeone's Atletico. Yeah, and I find that like Hitafe are like an Aldi version of Atletico Madrid in the way they play. Is it Bordalas as their manager? They play very defensively, like Jose Bordalas. Yeah, yeah, they play like a variation of four four two. So I can I think kind of inevitably that uh, that finished nil all. I don't know if my favorite footballer Patrick John Finn, uh, the Irish Cameroonian Spaniard, played or not. But uh, hopefully he's a name that we'll hear more about in an Irish context in years to come. We could certainly use him, couldn't we? Jesus. Um, but yeah, I guess, you know, then on the other side of the Madrid capital, I mean, the Spanish capital, um, Real Madrid are playing Atlanta, of course, this midweek uh, mark. Um, they hold a 1-0 lead from the first leg in Bergamo. And they're well and truly in mode, to be quite frank. Uh, they, they came back from a goal down to Villa at the weekend, 2-1. And they're really in the habit of grinding out results that aren't pretty they're at the business end of the season. This is like Real Madrid time now, these few months of the year. So they're quite focused in doing the business. Um, what's the perspective from Italy? I mean, I know there was real rancor over the manner of that victory in Bergamo and the refereeing decisions that went with it. Um, but is there much confidence that they can go to Madrid and pull off something? Um, and simultaneously, of course, Lazio faced quite a daunting um, kind of, you know, 4-1 uh, scoreline against Bayern Munich. Do you think they have any chance of doing anything there? Uh, on Lazio, no, absolutely not. I think, as as Jasmine said there earlier on, that I think that tie is is pretty much dead, and that's pretty that's been accepted. Um, they were, yeah, they, in the in the in the first round uh, of of matches, uh, the press were pretty upset that actually Milinkovic Savic wasn't given a penalty against Bayern. They kind of thought, uh, okay, they got absolutely outclassed, but if they'd got a penalty, I think when they were only 1-0 down, maybe the game could have been different. But I, I think as we, we saw over the course of the 90 minutes that, you know, Lazio have a good, Lazio have a good uh, first 11, but they, they have no depth. And when they're, when you, if you ask them, and this was always the fear, even before the, the, the group stage started, that they would be overstretched and, and, and they would, <laughs> I think, to be honest, Reaching the last sixteen is is a victory in itself, and the fact that they're they're not even in the top four at the moment says it all. When you when you consider that they were the surprise title challengers last year, so there, I mean, there's some quality there, but not enough to to compete with the likes of Bayern. And as Jasmine said, even that was a Bayern team that there was there was there was a few doubts around, you know, and and, and Lazio didn't really manage to to lay a glove on them. Uh, refereeing controversy aside, as for Atalanta, yeah. Uh, people were really, really, really upset about the red card. Uh, I think it was debatable. Obviously, if if it warranted a straight red card, uh, Floyler is obviously a key player as well in the centre of the park, and they're going to miss him. However, I, uh, I, I'll, I'll, I'll openly admit I, I am a massive, massive uh, fan of Atalanta in the sense that I just love the way they play football. I love the way they, the whole club is run. Uh, they're probably my favourite team in world football at the moment. I think they're the biggest overachievers in world football. When you look at their budget, uh, I just I love the philosophy of play. They take risks. They they're not afraid to lose. Uh, they they yeah they're so open. I mean they make me think of you know there's a great line in great line in Goodfellas where they say um, uh, everybody takes a beating once in a while, and Atalanta have that approach that okay we know that. Uh, if we, the way we're going to play, one one v one at the back, 
we're going to attack you. We know that every now and then this this might backfire. We don't have the the, the quality across the board, particularly in defence, that we might we might take a you know take a really heavy beating here. Uh, but nine times out of ten, they just they, they they find ways to win. You know, the the classic cliched one would be like Newcastle back in the day in '96, '97 under Keegan, and that kind of era. Um, they're just so good to watch, and I I genuinely believe again it could be their could be the heart ruling the head here, but I genuinely believe they have a chance. I've I've seen Madrid a lot this season. I watched them again at the weekend. You talked about the late goals uh, from Benzema. I think they can be beaten. Uh, I think I know they have pl- they have players back that they didn't have in the first leg, but it's uh, At- Atalanta have 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 goals everywhere in the team. Uh, Luis Muriel, who I hope they go for it, and I think they should. And if they play Muriel, if they play Zapata, if they play Ilicic, you know they've they've so much firepower. Even if they even if they only play two of that three, they go at them. Uh, Muriel is 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 averaging a goal every sixty minutes this season, which is insane. So they've they've got some lovely players. They've got some lovely attackers. Um, and I, 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 there's to talk about like the atmosphere in, in Bergamo at the moment. It's it's kind of like a, a cautious optimism. They, they they know they're not out of it because if they get the chance to play with eleven men for ninety minutes, uh, which they were denied in the first leg, they can beat them. And I think they know they can beat them. I think they know they probably have a more settled side. They have a more established, uh, clear, coherent footballing philosophy. I think I think they can cause trouble, and I, they'll never get another chance like this. I think we, we all know that. So I think they go, they they're gonna go there with a with a, a nothing to lose attitude, and they'll go there with a, like a lack of fear, I suppose, because even in the first leg we saw this is not a classic Madrid side. This is not like this the most amazing Madrid side we've ever seen. So um, I'm 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 yeah I'm cautiously optimistic. I think they can go there and win. I, I genuinely do. Whether they whether that gets them through, I don't know, but. They have nothing to fear, and and an Atalanta team with, with nothing to fear is, is is dangerous. You know, it really is. Absolutely, a finely poised tie for sure. And Sergio Ramos is back as well, so he'd be like a caged animal, I'd imagine, after missing so much football, missing the first leg, especially. Um, this is his time of the year, also. Um, but yeah, I guess that's pretty much it. Because finish up with your moment of the week and your player of the week. If I get each of your uh, takes for me anyway my player of the week had to be Karim Benzema um, just the manner in which he won that game for Madrid single-handedly the second goal specifically was of phenomenal high quality 1-2 with Rodrigo edge of the box kind of an arrowed finish um, his 20th goal of the season like he's really in fantastic form despite his fact that he's in his 30s now and I think the fact that he's been in Madrid for you know for 12 years over a decade and maintained a spot there is very, very rare, especially in a team that's won four Champions League titles in that time. Um, and it's a real testament to his ability and also his character because, you know, not a lot of players can do that. And he was always a lesser light to Gareth Bale and Cristiano Ronaldo, but he's still very much there. And now we're really seeing the full kind of, you know, capability that he has because he's single-handedly carrying this remedied offense. There's nobody else giving anything offensively to them um, in the final third. And then for my moment of the week, it's also linked to Atlanta, Mark. It's Papu Gomez. Um, post, I don't know if you saw it last night, but post Seville Derby, um, a video was released of Papu in the Seville bus with a bottle of beer in his hand, dancing away to his heart's content, uh, while all the Seville squad just w- watched on and clapped. It was uh, pretty funny. Pretty good character. He's a great character. Yeah, he's a he's a great character. Very very popular guy. It was sad to see him leave. So yeah, genuinely, I I loved him. Loved him. Do you, do you think he still has football left in him? Do you think he could do damage in La Liga? 
I do. I, I, he's definitely he's definitely a very talented, technically gifted player. So it could suit him, and particularly at a club like Sevilla, where was it? Jesus Navas has kind of enjoyed a, a, a rebirth. So I do maybe maybe not to the same degree at Atalanta because he was so such an integral part of a system, and it is really the system is the star at Atalanta and the formation rather than you know Ilicic, Zapata, Muriel. It's it's more about the style of play and the so I. I he, he was at the perfect place in Atalanta, but I, I really do hope he does well at Sevilla because it was really sad the way it just ended quite suddenly and acrimoniously. Absolutely. I'd love to have seen Ega, Lucas Ocampos and Papu Gomez playing together, three Argentines full of arrogance, full of character, sharing their mate. But anyway, I'm, I'm digressing. Uh, Jasmine, um, what was your player and moment of the week? My, I, I play in the group, in our little group, uh, quite early in the week. It was another Serie A moment uh, Bologna manager Sinisa Milahajovic against Napoli wearing his Jordans <laughs> fully suited and having a pair of Jordans on just really made me smile and uh, and the hat and the hat don't forget the hat oh the, the hat I didn't even realize I forgot about that oh but the man who rocks up managing a game in Jordans just got my vote um Player, I'm gonna have to say Martin Odegaard. Um, he's been brilliant since. Well, he's fitted in, I think, quite well in the Arsenal team. I really hope we can somehow pry him off Real Madrid. Um, I think he was one of the differences in actually beating Tottenham the first time in five or six games. Um, so yeah. Scores first goal too against Olympiacos, of course. Um, John. For you, who is your player of the week and what was your moment of the week? Well, the Mihailovic thing, first of all, is really unsurprising given uh, how cocksure he apparently is uh, as a player. And then laterally, as a coach, I think he probably thought he looked spectacular. And I blame Pep Guardiola, frankly, for that, for thinking managers really stylish on sidelines. Uh, Nagelsmann took that baton and ran down a weird street as well. Yes, yeah, awful clobber. Um, I don't know how his wife lets him out of the house. Um, I think the moment of the week is Eric Lamela's Rabona. Uh, he then went on to blot his copybook with a moment of idiotic uh, petulance, swinging an arm out like that. But the actual goal itself was it, it was fantastic. And I even think it took the commentators uh, aback because Martin Tyler kind of seemed like it took him a while to react to it because it's so strange to see a goal like that happen. So out of the ordinary, it was a fantastic goal. Uh, he He's a player that's never really hit his straps at Spurs since coming from Roma, where he looked excellent, but he has had moments like that infrequently. He scored one. He scored an uh, even more impressive rebound in the Europa League when he was first there, but then that goal was special. And my player of the week isn't necessarily the best player that's played in the last week, but I, I have to give a special mention to Nat Phillips. This was a guy who was going to play soccer, as they call it, in America on a scholarship in college in 2016, was about to go to the airport and he was called to sign for Liverpool's academy. And uh, he, he joined He joined them. He's had loans in uh, the Bundesliga 2 with Stuttgart. And his Liverpool career looked like it was coming to an end last summer where he agreed personal terms with Swansea, but they got cold feet at the last minute. So he's kind of come in as an emergency option for Liverpool and... I mean, let's not get lost in the sauce. Like, he's never going to make it there long term. He's just too agricultural and too slow. But offered the team maybe a bit of consistency in a time where there's been so much flux. He's imperious in the air. And I think by one or two occasions where he kind of got lost against uh, Yusuf Poulsen and got skin for pace, I thought he was 
very good against Leipzig. And, you know, it's a Champions League knockout tie. That's not to be sneezed at. So no matter where he goes from his, no matter where he goes in his career uh, from this point, I think he can be very proud of that. And uh, he looks like such a humble guy. So I think he'll appreciate it. I love the contemptuous use of the word uh, soccer there, John. Really uh, passionate. <laughs> and yeah, I love the amazing celebration too, actually. I think when players score a goal like that, I think they have to either play a completely cool Eric Cantona style or else go absolutely bonkers. And he definitely did the latter. He was really enthusiastic in the celebration, which I found f- quite funny. Um, but Mark, what's your player moments of the week? Um, okay, I, I do not like this player whatsoever. <laughs> but... Uh, Pepe from Porto I thought was absolutely phenomenal against Juve last week and he was at his absolute worst in terms of play acting and cynicism and trying to influence the referee and I just thought my god he still has it I think he's like 38 years of age he's an absolute thug at times on the field but but he was immense and it it kind of summed it up I was kind of Watching it with grudging admiration as he as he bicycle kicked bicycle kicked the ball out of the area in the in the last minute of extra time in what was a brilliant brilliant match and I just thought Pepe you magnificent like it was it was it was it was a, a phenomenal performance from a guy like uh, of that age and on the same night that Ronaldo had such a such a terrible dreadful game and was criticised so heavily everybody over here was just raving about Pepe so. Uh, he'd, be, he'd be my player of the week reluctantly even though it's a guy that I, I hated for so long uh, as for moment of the week I was going to say Lamella because it made me jump out of the chair I had no interest in it um, in the in the North London derby other than you know such a, such a great fixture uh, so I, I had no bias and I just thought what an incredible incredible goal what an incredible piece of ingenuity but I'll actually go with one that uh, Jasmine mentioned earlier on I cracked up when Haaland was mocking uh, the Sevilla keeper Bono um, and then when I heard the interview afterwards, when he had no idea what he was saying to him, uh, was just repeating a Spanish insult. I just thought this is brilliant. This guy's not only is this guy a freak of nature, and and he's going to be one of the best goal scorers we're ever going to see. He's also absolutely hilarious. He just seems like such a contrary, out there character uh, that I think he's just going to be pure gold for years and years and years. So yeah, he, that was the moment that really made me laugh this week. I really enjoyed that. Absolutely. In the age of, you know, the manufactured superstar, he's certainly an individual, you know, so it should be interesting to see his progression through the years. But, uh, but yeah, guys, that's it. Thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Um, where can we find you on social media to keep track with your work? Uh, Jasmine, I'll start with you. Um, underscore Jasmine Barber on Twitter. Um, I should be writing at some point soon. John? Uh, at Notorious JOS on Twitter for your sins um, I'll be writing or I have wrote it'll be dropping in the next few days a defence of Andrew Robertson who maybe a lot of Liverpool fans are criticising but not taking in the context of the season with their criticism so that'll be dropping in the next few days hopefully on Apple Index Sounds interesting uh, Mark how about you? I actually had to look up my uh, Twitter uh, profile or tag because I actually didn't know it and it's also it's terrible it's actually absolutely terrible it's Mark underscore Doyle 11. So, yeah, I do not blame anyone if they do not want to fo- follow such a terrible, uh, <laughs> terrible time. But, uh, yeah, you can find any on uh, my work is on, uh, on Goal. I work for Goal. So, uh, regularly writing about Syria and, and other European issues. So, yeah, uh, Goal.com is where you can find anything belonging to me. 
Fantastic. I'd urge everybody to follow all three. Um, and for me, uh, Azul Feely on Twitter, uh, there's a piece coming soon on Anzu Fati and Nilish Mariba, two uh, youngsters from La Masia with similar upbringings, and they're very, very close, it seems. And they're both really showing signs of being the future of Football Club Barcelona. So interesting things coming there. But listen, guys, thanks so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Um, please like share review recommend this podcast to your network and your friends so we can continue to grow and uh, we'll see you next week uh with the new episode so thanks guys and uh, good luck see you next week <laughs>